This is the Course of Action Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Clark. My debut book, Hear These Truths, The Ultimate Guide to Building Your Leadership Algorithm, is available now wherever books are sold. Check it out on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and for signed copies, go to jeffclarkofficial.com and get in touch. Don't forget to follow on social media, leave a five-star review for the book, and hit that subscribe button for the latest episode notifications. And as always, enjoy the episode. All right, my next guest is T.R. Matson, author of Treason Flight, former naval aviator, and we're going to get into that here in a little bit, but T.R., welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to this. Yeah, of course, man. I appreciate you coming on, and uh, I grabbed uh, Treason Flight a while back when I think they were doing a Kindle um, sale on it, and I oh, yeah. I scooped it up, and um, <laughs> it's doing really well on Amazon. I had like almost 400 reviews I saw today, so I was like, hey, man, that's awesome. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm shocked, and I'm very happy, and I didn't realize how important those are, and yeah. as you know, it's – and I feel bad asking people, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's – it really makes a difference. So it um, does. And the way it's built into the algorithm and oh advertising God. and all that stuff. Like yeah, I've even crazy. heard that like you gotta have at least a hundred or Amazon won't even acknowledge it. Like yeah, I've heard all really, these different things. I'm like, that's really crazy. Weird. Like it's weird. But it works. I mean, everything that you pay Amazon and royalties, it works. So I've seen it as far as just funny things your phone hears you say and then I'm talking to a buddy about it and he's like, dude, it just popped up in my Amazon. I'm like, hmm, it's weird. Good, it good is for me. <laughs> so the internet well, has become a creepy thing. It has. It has. It's, it's convenient sometimes because I'll be talking about, oh, you know, I need some new work boots or something for work. Yep. And then my Instagram ads, you yep. got got your recommendations. And I'm like, well, I mean, this is convenient, but it's also a, a horrible invasion of privacy. I, yeah. I literally, <laughs> there's a story I was I was teaching in my civilian job. And I'm I'm briefing these these two pilots and and the the one had heard about the book or somebody had told him the day prior and whatever. So we're talking about it. And the, the other guy's like, oh, I don't know. And I was like, Well, you have an Amazon account? He's like, I do. And I was he's like, You want me to look it up? I was like, No, it's fine. And about 10 minutes later, I was like, Hey, open up your Amazon. And there it was. And he's like, dude, I don't know how I feel about that. I was like, I know how I feel because it works to my benefit. So, <laughs> but yeah, it's all, you it's know, it's great for an author who's trying to sell yeah, stuff or, or anybody sure, else who's sure. trying to sell things. But oh, yeah. it is, it's insanely creepy the way it is super creepy. It listen ins like that. <laughs> you just kind of, you kind of question whether or not that's ethical or not. But at yeah. the same time, it's like I'm selling books. So I don't really yeah. want to complain. Yeah, exactly. You're paying for that that algorithm. You you pay them, so it's not like you're doing it for free. So yeah, exactly. It's worth it. But. So, naval pilot. Um, yep. How long were you in? Twenty years. So, so you did the full active, twenty. Yeah, thirteen active and seven in the reserves. Okay. Um, pilot. E two C Hawkeye and mm-hmm. the F A eighteen Hornet. Yeah, it's a it's a tongue full. So most people just say the F eighteen. Uh, it's funny. Somebody asked me that on social media. They're like. How do you say it and how do you write it? And I'm like, well, when I write it, I write F slash A TAC 18 Charlie, if that's what I'm referring to. But when I say it, I just say F18. So what is, for those who aren't listening or for sure. those who are listening who don't know the difference in aircrafts, what is an E2C Hawkeye? So Air Force guy, right? So it's an AWACS. 
That's oh, basically okay. what it is. It, it does the same mission. Now, of course, we're all cocky in every bit of the military. So we say that it does the same mission with, you know, a fifth of the people. But it's basically two pilots, three, uh, three naval flight officers in the back that run all the systems. Um, there's some bleed over. The, the co-pilot can do certain things up front. Um, but, yeah, it's basically airborne command and control. It was originally designed way back um, solely to find Russian bombers that were trying to attack the carrier battle group. That was its sole purpose. Um, obviously, well, maybe that is more of a threat. I'm not sure uh, <laughs> as far as our geopolitical things go, but obviously it had to adapt um, mm -hmm. and it became really a, a battle space manager. And, and the way I describe it to people that aren't into aviation, that don't understand it like you and I, is, is basically it's kind of like your Wi-Fi modem or router in your house. Like if you unplug that thing, the whole place shuts down. That's kind of what the E2 is, the same way the AWACS is for the Air Force, that if you take that out of the battle space, people can't talk to each other, the link is mm. not up, the ships yeah. can't talk. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, and, and it's and it's morphed itself more and more and more over the years and has really become quite a, a capable battle space managing aircraft. And, and my hat is off to the, to the NFOs that fly in the back of that thing. I, <laughs> that is not an easy job. Um, but they do fantastic work to, to be able to do that. So yeah, that's the Hawkeye and okay. my first love. <laughs> was guess. it the first, uh, first plane you flew? Yeah. So after flight school, that was ultimately what, um, what I ended up in. And, and that's kind of a, I went a long roundabout way to get there. Um, you know, graduated college, got commissioned, went through the steps of flight school, got the, this will be near and dear to your heart, I think, but got the, um, the privilege, if you will, to cross train in primary flight training with the Air Force at Enid, Oklahoma. So nice. Uh, yep. So I've I've spent six or seven months at Vance Air Force Base, which, as a Navy guy, um, was very confusing. <laughs> it was uh, the geographic center of the country is not typically where you find yourself as a Navy guy. So very far away from all oceans, but uh, it was really good training. Uh, this was uh, back in. 2002, so flying the T-37, and then um, eventually selected the E-2-C-2 pipeline, either the E-2 or the C-2, which is the cargo variant. Um, and then ultimately kind of had this weird dream of still wanting to fly fighters, even though I didn't really come from a aviation background. So, um, but I always want to fly them because because they're cool. You know, yeah. I mean, who, you know, it's, it's the... I wanted to fly them. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. it's... Anybody who saw Top Gun fly the intruder, yeah. you name it. So um, I picked the E2, actually. So it's a funny story how you split in that pipeline, at least back when I went through, is there was 10 of us, and they put us in a room. And the instructors walked in, and they said, there's eight of you that are going to go fly the E2, and two of you are going to go fly the COD. Figure it out. And we've never had a class not figure it out on their own, so don't make you the first. And they walked out. And that was it. And, I mean, people were were – offering money. I mean, this was, you know, back in 2004, you know, somebody's like, I'll give somebody three grand right now for a COD spot. You know, it was the funniest thing. And I'm wow. like, I'm like, really? Like, so I just stood up. I was like, look, I want to fly the E2. Um, so I'll take one. And that was it. And I walked out and I was done. So, um, so I flew that and did three deployments on the Nimitz flying that three combat deployments. And then uh, I was lucky enough to 
to be in the right place at the right time with the right preparation, I guess, for the opportunity. And there was a, a chance to switch platforms, which is kind of rare in the Navy. And I ended up ultimately getting to the Hornet and flying that for a tour, which was about as opposite as you can get from the E2 and, uh, and did that yeah. for another, another combat tour on the, on the Stennis. So on a combat was, tour too. Yeah. Both uh, everything I did, all four deployments were all, all combat. They, they lure us in by telling us we're going Westpac and we're going to visit Hong Kong and Singapore. And then as soon as you pull out of San Diego, they're like, you're going to go to the Persian Gulf as quick as possible. And we did see some of those port calls, but for the most part, we were in the Persian Gulf. So sure. Uh, so that's not that we had a choice, but that's, yeah, that's how the military goes. Like, Hey, yeah, we're going to exactly. do this probably on the way. We're going to do all this other stuff too. Exactly. You know, you'll be fine. So, exactly. um, so E2 over to F18 Hornet, but then you were a landing signals officer. Mm -hmm. What so, is that? So LSO, uh, it, there's a long, long history of, of what that is in the Navy, but basically it's the guys and girls that stand on the back of the ship and are there to help slash grade, not necessarily in that order, every landing on the ship. So it doesn't matter if you're the newest, um, you know, Lieutenant JG or Ensign that's coming aboard or a Navy captain in 06 uh, or an Admiral if they're flying, you're going to get your paths graded. Um, every landing you do is graded. Every squadron on the ship has what they call a greenie board, which is every pilot's name and the grade they got for every landing. So everybody could see it. Um, oh, it's wow. just out there. So, but it's, it's more so the job of an LSO is the safe and expeditious recovery of aircraft aboard the ship. That's the technical definition. So you're there for, um, for the bad days, for the pitching deck days, for the malfunctions, um, all the things that don't go according to plan, you know, a perfect recovery is 10 to 12 aircraft come back. Nobody says a word. They all just land about a minute apart. And then you go greet them their passes. But in typical military fashion and, and naval aviation fashion, that's not always the case. So you're out there um, on a team and you work your way up um, from the bottom guy all the way to the team leader. And, and you're in charge of everything. And it's it's double checking that the the lens is set for the proper aircraft, the landing gear, the resting cables are set for the proper aircraft because any one of those things is off and it's catastrophic. So um, and there's there's usually a team with experience from every plane. So when I was a team lead, we had myself as the E2 guy, we had some Hornet guys, we had a guy that flew prowlers um, and all that. So you have that. So if something goes wrong with one of those planes, you should have somebody that's get an expert smart there. right there on the spot. So, so how do you um, become an LSO? So the official answer is it's eligible to everybody, but in reality, at least when I was in, it was more of a fraternity. You kind of rushed it. Um, it was something I really wanted to do. And, and I was talking to somebody else about this. It was interesting. We were talking about being an instructor and did you know you wanted to be an instructor and all this. And, and I mean, I, I came from what I think is very normal, humble background. I mean, my dad was a mechanic. He owned a shop. I grew up in that shop. I was changing oil before I could drive. And, you know, my family ran that business and nobody did aviation. My first flight ever in a plane, flying a plane was at Vance. Uh, which was not the norm because uh, Air Force guys typically have about 50 hours of flight time before they even show up. So um, I was really impressed with these instructors and their ability to take a guy like me who not only had no idea how to fly, also was trying to overcome massive air sickness issues 
and other things like that and still taught me and still still molded me into this person that could fly airplanes. And then on top of it, you get to T-45s. We were going to go out to the ship for the first time. And I saw these LSOs and I'm like, oh my God, you, know, you took you took somebody who was changing oil a few years ago and I'm going to land on an aircraft carrier and not kill myself. And, and I always said at that point, if I had the opportunity to do it, I really wanted to do that because I thought that was really cool. Um, so when I got to my first squadron, I just walked up to the LSO platform. And that was it. And I just hung out. And if they needed help, if they needed anything, I was there. You just kind of rush it and you get a feel for it and they get a feel for you. And um, certain pilots, you know, they have to have a certain number in each squadron just because it's a it's a watch standing duty, just like anything else. And um, I was a little bit selfish because I was I knew when we were at sea, a squadron duty officer was one of the duties sitting behind the desk, not flying. I didn't really necessarily want to do that. So in the E2 squadron, at least, if you're an LSO, that's your duty. You never sat squadron duty officer. So at least on my duty day, I was outside. Yeah. So it's kind of a little bit selfish, but you get to know the air wing. You get to know the pilots, um, you know, that you're working with. It was just something that was really cool. And, and I just had such a high level of respect for the people that taught me that, you know, I wanted to strive for that and it, mm -hmm. it worked out. So probably dumb luck that they needed somebody about the same time that I checked into the squadron. So, um, you know, but it worked out and then you go through all your quals, just like you're getting your quals in the aircraft. You're trying to get your quals in that as well. Um, okay. To kind of build your resume, if you will. Uh, okay. There, so. so what is it like? landing on an aircraft carrier because in the movies and stuff they make it look like it's money you know um but obviously it to me and, and correct me if i'm wrong but it seems like the aircraft carrier is built a little bit more for smaller aircraft so landing in e2 which is bigger than a fighter jet mm -hmm. um seems a little insane so what is it like <laughs> landing on first what is it just like landing on an aircraft carrier and two what's it like landing a larger aircraft on one sure so um insanity is probably the best way to describe it um i don't know even today when i fly i don't know if i'm ever been more focused even in the worst conditions um than i was behind the ship it just it it takes 100% of your, your focus, your, your just attention, your instrument scan, everything. I mean, it, you, it's almost like you have kind of in a weird way, like a superpower because your brain is so focused on the task at hand, but Oh, by the way, it can only really focus that for a short amount of time. And then it's right. like a data dump and it, you know, you, everybody had their thing. Um, mine was my right leg. Every night landing I've ever had on an aircraft carrier, as soon as I stop, my right leg starts shaking. That's the adrenaline dump. Like everybody has it. And it's just a weird physiological thing. Um, I would say, maybe I'm not correct in this, but I would say you do it long enough and daytime gets fun. Okay. Any Anybody who tells you that nighttime is fun, in my opinion, is either lying to you or a psychopath. There's like, no way landing at night is fun. It's, That's got to be the most I mean, stressful thing in the But it's world. a weird stress because it's not active stress. Like it was actually in my E2 squadron because we were bored. We did this heart rate monitor study where like I wore a heart rate monitor and and it logged everything. And we looked back at the data and it was funny. The points of the flight where 
I mean, your heart rate sitting in a plane flying was at, you know, 60, 70, 80 beats a minute. And then it was like, it's time to go do something like start coming down. And it would shoot up to like 140. And then it would shoot up to almost 200 when you were actually doing it. But then like seconds after you land, it's tanks back down to like 60. And it it was like, I'm like, is this even healthy? And they're like, probably not. No, whatever. um, It's frowned upon. Yeah. at, At night, it was, it was tough because the nights where you think it would be easier with like a full moon and you could see a lot were actually harder because when it's really dark out, you have nothing to look at. So you just fly your instruments and, and fly the landing aids on the ship and that's all you have. But on they, they'd called it kind of the bolter moon, bolter meaning when you miss the wires and have to go around. Um, when there was a big full moon and you could see that whole ship, your scan would slow down and, and it was, it was not easy. So, um, as far as the the big plane, it I get I got that a lot. So I went through, I flew the E2, then I taught for a very small amount of time in T45s down in Kingsville. And then I went and flew the Hornet, and then I ended up actually going to Meridian, Mississippi as uh, a landing signal the lead landing signals officer for the base to bring all the new kids out to the ship, which was extremely rewarding. But because I had flown both, a lot of the students would ask, you know, like which was harder, which was harder. And you know, you don't want to diminish either aircraft. Um, the reality of it, my last landing on the ship in the E-2 was still harder than my first landing in the Hornet. It's just the reality of it. Now, they're different, right? So the, the Hawkeye comes across the back of the ship about 120, 125 knots, and the Hornet does it about 165 knots. So it's faster. A little faster. So that's, that's a little bit more dangerous. But like you alluded to, the Hornet has little stubby wings and has some room to play with the hawkeye is 80 foot wide wingtip to wingtip and the landing area is 85 foot wide Ooh, that's it not you a lot two of and a half foot yeah. off center line that's it and they park things if you've ever seen pictures of aircraft carriers with it fully loaded i mean there are people equipment planes right on what they would call the foul lines right on that yeah the, the deck is not empty like the movie no, show no, there's, no. there's it stuff is, it is full. And in fact, I have a very good friend of mine um, who I will say is Clipper in Treason Flight. Uh, he is a real person, uh, which goes to a funny review I could tell you about later. But um, he actually had an instance where the ship turned on him at night inside the one mile call, trying to find that perfect wind. Uh, he fought it. He boltered. He landed a little bit right. And the tip of his about two foot of his wing right wing tip went through the tail of two super hornets that were parked on the bow. And he went airborne again and came back around and had to land again. And so, I mean, you don't have any play at all. So yeah. center line for an E2 guy or a C2 guy, center line is, is life. Now you have a lot more instantaneous power because you have the props. So they'll pick power very quickly, big wingspan. So it gets lift very quickly. Um, whereas the Hornet, you know, now your problem is it's a jet engine or two jet engines. If you pull the power off for too long, the spool up time of the engines, you could get yourself into a real bad situation vertically, not laterally. So they each had their own um, things that made them difficult. But I would still say at least the Hawkeye that I flew back in, you know, 2005, 6, 7, 8, that time frame, it was it was tougher than the Hornet. So, wow. Yeah, that's not (laughs) that's not a lot of room at all. Two and a half feet. I mean, two and a half feet is not. No. Is that's just that's a lot of room for error. I mean, I can't uh, yeah. imagine. 
I can't imagine that. Like, it looks like at night it would be the most hair-raising thing ever. But I guess I could also see what you're saying in a perspective of, you know, when you can't see anything and all you can see is the lines and your markers, that's all you can focus on. That's it. There's no glare off the water from the moon or or the tower or any anything else. It's just the lines. So I guess I could see that. It just seems very scary to me. I'm trying to land on a on a green neon line or something. It's crazy. I mean, I I still come down too fast. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, I remember going through training in the Hawkeye and, you know, in the, in the T 45, you just go out by yourself solo for your first landings and they're all daytime. That's all you get. Um, your daytime only. And then you graduate, get your wings and you go on to fly the the E two. And now you have another pilot with you. Who's an instructor in the right seat. And it was funny. I remember even during the day, as I'm coming around in this, this giant plane, my natural right-hand tendency was just to keep adding a little bit of power because I didn't want to come down. I'm like, well, if I just get high, I'll go around, you know, and, and he's pulling them back like, hey, man, we got to, that's where the food is. Like, we got to get there, you know, and, yeah. <laughs> um, but the conditions are perfect, right? I mean, like, I, I want to think it's something like the seas can't be bigger than two to four feet when you're in training. I mean, that's nothing in the ocean, right? Well, then, um, and it's, it's worth Googling it, there's a there's a PBS special from back in the day called Carrier that they did a long time ago, and it was my first deployment. So I finish up my training, and I'm shipped to Australia immediately to pick up my squadron, and and we pull out a port, and there's a there's a an episode on there called Pitching Deck, and that is my introduction into naval aviation in the fleet. I mean, they were 35 foot seas plus or minus. I remember specifically, I will never forget my first fleet night trap. I'm flying with the best senior pilot we have in the squadron, which was normal practice. And we're coming down on this instrument approach. And it was a beautiful, clear night, huge moon. I could see everything. Well, I guess something had happened on the flight deck prior to our approach. So they turned all the lights on, right? So it's FOD walk down. They turn all the lights on. They're, they're looking for something on the flight deck before we come in. But we're still coming. And I remember the Nimitz and I could see it all lit up. And on the side of the tower, there's the number of the ship, right? 68 on both sides. And I watched this ship turn and Dutch roll where I saw the 68 and then it did this huge heave. And I saw the 68 of the other side. And I'm like, did you just see that? And my co-pilot was like, fly your instruments. Like, don't look outside. It was the most <laughs> bizarre thing. I'm like, how do you, I'm like, how do you land on that? Like, and, and the reality is that's where the LSO comes in. Because if you're out of sync with the deck and all that, they're just going to wave you off and you'll come back around and try it. So, um, so again, so you have like a second set of eyes. That's what the LSO oh, yeah. is, is your other 100%. set of eyes on the ground. 100%. Because there's things that I could see as an LSO with the way the plane was that I would know it before the pilot knew it, believe it or not. You would get that good at being Makes an LSO sense. that you could actually watch the energy state of the plane or, it just didn't look right, and uh, and you would just get rid of them. And there's always, you know, another. Now in the E2, we couldn't at that time we couldn't mid flight, mid air fuel, so there was a finite amount of gas that we had. Uh, unlike the Hornet, where one of my buddies kind of joked once, he's like, in the F18, you're either really good at landing on the ship or really good at air to air tanking because you're going to do a lot of one or the other. So, <laughs> um, you know, but it was definitely an interesting uh, introduction into into carrier life for sure but 
my my egotistical, cocky student side of like, I want to fly the E2 because they land on the ship at night was immediately erased with like, why does anybody do this? This is ridiculous. Like, who invented this? I want to yeah. murder that guy. So, you know, it's funny how your perspective <laughs> changes very, very quickly. But I saw a video one time. It was of it was of a Hornet landing and an F-16 landing um, at the same airstrip. And it was from behind. So it was looking down the runway as they were coming in. Um, And you saw the F-16 comes in, touches the ground, noses up for a little while. Eventually, you know, nose lands down. And I'm not a pilot, so I'm no expert. But uh, look like a good landing, smoke from the wheels, didn't look like any issues. Hornet comes down, boom. I mean, lands. (laughs) And it's like the difference between Air Force pilot and a Navy pilot who oh, has yeah. had to land on a carrier. Oh, yeah. Well, like, I mean, that's land. the thing is uh, the, the crazy part in a perfect world, if every airplane, and because you can adjust the lens and everything you're looking at on the ship, in a perfect world, the hook point would touch down in the same one square foot spot on the flight deck every time. doesn't matter. Conditions, everything. That's perfect world. So, um, of course, you know, you go on an airliner or something, the joke is if it was a hard landing, it was a Navy landing. And, and that I've seen that video. I love that video. The Hornet is actually designed to land that way, even at the field. Okay. So if you were to, we had people that tried to do that nice flare and smooth landing in the Hornet, and it would actually mess up the landing gear. It was designed to take an impact and absorb it and and do it. So that's how you would do it at the field too, is you would just fly it all the way down. So I kind of joke, you know, other than Vance for six months, I never flared an airplane until I got into the into the civilian world you know i just flew it onto the ground and that's what you do so <laughs> almost it's comical the way it landed i was like man that was a hard landing yeah. I mean, he, nope. he planted that sucker yep. on the ground but i guess it's intended that, that it's kind of like that, a driving a monster truck it's yep. designed to take a hard landing and oh yeah take some punishment which is really cool i have a new respect for it i figured that golly that's got to be hard on an airframe mm. to nope 100 how it's hit that hard well that's cool so, and then there's different variants like the you know the the Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, the and Boeing, and with the Hornet, was a. It's a good plane. Don't get me wrong. It's a very good plane. But but there's a lot to be said for the Hawkeye and Grumman Ironworks. Like they built, uh, and I mean other planes, the F-14, the A-6. I mean these were just tanks. Yeah. And there were times of pitching deck where I landed nose gear first on the ship. I mean literally hit nose gear first, slammed down, catch the wire. Plane's fine. No problem. The Hornet, there was codes. And if you landed too hard at the ship, it would pop a code, a 903 or a 904. And depending on how bad it was, it was a maintenance inspection. It was a huge deal. They bring it down the hangar. So it was just different built aircraft, you know, and, and you see it when you watch Tomcats and, and intruders and Hawkeyes and stuff land. They can just, Grumman is hats off. <laughs> They're fantastic. Yeah. They're fantastic. They built hard planes. So and I tested it, trust me, <laughs> plenty of time. <laughs> so with all this 20 years of aviation experience, then you retire, you, you shift over to, let's be an author. How did that, how did that come? When, when did, sure. oh, I should, the light bulb kicked on. Oh, I should write a book. Sure. So when I was in my E2 squadron, one of the things I was really trying to build my resume, if you will, it's not really a resume in the military, you know, but, you know, essentially a resume. Um, and one of the things I did on the side is I got my master's degree. Uh, 
only because I was trying to do this transition to Hornets and I knew that the Navy had certain timelines, you know, for your career. And if I could get that out, maybe they would be like, well, Hey, he doesn't have to go to that school. Let's let him, I don't know. It was just something. So my whole master's was in leadership, which was whatever, but it was all, you know, um, correspondence and it was all done remotely. I mean, most of it I did while I was on the Nimitz in the Persian Gulf. So, um, but it was all writing. It was writing a lot of papers and, and I enjoyed it, but it never really clicked until about 2017. So I'm off active duty. Um, I'm doing my civilian job. Life's good. Uh, my son's not even born yet. You know, we're just kind of living, living a good life. And I'm like, you know, I'm pretty cool. I should write an autobiography. That was my first thought. And of course, my <laughs> wife, because uh, our significant others are usually smarter than us, is like, mm, are you? Like, yeah. are you sure? And That's I'm like, no, no, no. I'm say. like, You're I'm, not like, that I'm awesome. pretty, yeah, I'm like, I'm pretty awesome. Uh, I'm going to write this. And I got like one chapter in and I'm like, mm, maybe okay. I'm not that good. Maybe like, she's maybe, right. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so it kind of sat stagnant for a little bit. And, and I would say from 2017, believe it or not, into 2020, it just kind of hung out. And maybe I completed about 10%, which is nothing. I mean, um, I'd go back and I'd edit for which I've learned now, just don't do like just get it done and then go back, you know, so I was doing all the wrong things over that time. But I was working my day job and, and we were having a good time and my son was born and all that. And then it was April of 2020. And, and by no means, not trying to diminish what this country was going through at that point and, and the loss of life and all that. That's not it. But my job was like, Hey, go home for the month. Like we're shutting everything down, go home. Okay. So, um, a lot of people are like, Oh, so you wanted to write a book. And I'm like, not really, actually what it was is I was upstairs. I'll never forget it. My kid was, he was just over two years old. We're playing cars and trucks. Shocking. Um, so he's also <laughs> going to be addicted to cars when he grows up. So yeah. I did not break, I did not break that generational, yeah, uh, didn't break trend. the cycle. Good. No, unfortunately. So that's an expensive hobby he's got to look forward to, but, um, we're up there, we're playing cars and I'm, I'm thinking to myself and I'm like, you know, when he goes to high school, like they're going to teach this, everything that we've lived through as a country in the last two years or whatever, they're going to teach. It's going to be a history lesson. I mean, you mm -hmm. went to history lessons that your parents, you know, they were in So I'm like. And, and again, not trying to diminish it, it obviously affected everybody, but they're probably going to over-dramatize it a little bit too, right? 100%. Like I remember calling my dad and I was like, hey, your mom. And she's like, yeah. And he's, I'm like, live through the Great Depression, right? He's like, yep. And I was like, did you ever ask her like how bad it was? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, what'd she say? It's like, yeah, it wasn't fun. That was her take on it. But like when I learned about it, it was like death and despair and all this. Yeah. So I'm sitting there thinking about it and I'm like, my kid is going to go to high school and he's going to learn about what we went through, which was bad, but it's going to sound a thousand times worse. So to me, and this is just a total, I know I've been a father for almost four years now, right? So I'm totally smart on this, but I'm like, this is how I envision it. When he's in high school, he's going to come home. He's going to be like, dad, we learned about this. What was it really like? And at that moment, I wanted to be able to point to the shelf and go, I wrote that book during that time. So no matter how bad you're going through something, if you have a goal, you can obtain it. So mm. that day, December 31st of 2020, I was going to have the first draft done. And I finished it around November uh, with that goal in mind to be able to say that. Now, I'm sure he'll never come home. That situation will never happen. <laughs> but, but 
damn it, it got it done. And, and that was basically the, the idea for it. And then where I came up with the kind of the, the point of it was, you know, I grew up with, with Stephen Koontz and Flight of the Intruder. I read a lot of um, Richard Marcinko and his time in the SEALs and then how he transitioned from that to like fiction writer. And what I really liked was, was Stephen Koontz would, and Flight of the Intruder, I mean, if you've ever heard him talk about how that came to be, he was an A6 pilot in Vietnam and he would hear all these stories, right? And he basically took them all, put them on one fictional character. There's your book. And so basically the only thing I did differently is I took a fictional character, Rattler, right? And I heard all these stories or some of it did happen to me, some of it didn't. Sprinkle in a little, as my dad says, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Mm -hmm. And there's treason flight. So that's kind of how it came to be. So the synopsis basically, and I, I just looked it up, is you know, Jack Owen is a pilot who is facing not just separation from his family, but aircraft problems and leadership that makes him question a lot of things that are going on mm -hmm. in his squadron. And um, it's definitely an interesting read. But where did where did kind of the characters come from? Is that a lot of it you? I mean, are any of these based well, on you or real life no. people? So, so Rattler is not me. I am not him. Um, there are certain aspects of it. I mean, obviously I flew V2s. Um, I will say for the people listening, uh, the prologue is a true story. So that actually did happen to me. Um, really? 100% true story. Um, I still live it when I close my eyes. <laughs> it's in the brain. It's never going away. Yeah. Um, but it, it was it was variations of things. And, it, and it's funny because like Clipper is a true person. I mean, I've been friends with him for 20 years. And, and it, it's kind of interesting because his character is very out there. And it's not, if you weren't in the military, if you weren't around aviation, it's not what you would expect from a naval officer. And it's funny because there was literally a review that's like, this Clipper character, there's no way this person would exist in real life and all this stuff. And I thought to myself, I'm like, I actually had to tone him back a little in the book. Like the real Clipper is actually more intense and more out there than the <laughs> character. But I was like, if I make it that way, nobody's going to believe me. So right. the, he's the pretty much the number one that's actually a person um, with his permission. And, and he was excited about it. The rest are variations of people, you know, maybe a little bit of somebody and a little bit of this. Um, some of it's just what comes up in my head uh, that fits the story. Um, and things like that. It's, it is funny. I've had people from my squadron reach out to me and, Hey, am I this person? And I'm like, no, like, no. <laughs> well, Hey, this person is a great leader in the book. That's clearly me. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no. So, so, but I mean, Hey, if they want to think that good for sure. them, but, but the only person it. that's, that's really a true character that I can put a, put a name on is, is Clipper. Um, just because he's, he's larger than life in, in real life. So he, he makes a great fictional character and we've been friends forever. So it worked out really well. So the prologue, by the way, this, this awesome prologue that he just spoke about, you can go read the prologue on the website. So mm -hmm. putting that right here um, in the video, you can see it. Um, those listening, it's trmatson, M-A-T-S-O-N.com. Um, you can go read the prologue and it's, it's pretty gripping. It's a really, really cool prologue. Um, and like you said, true story. So mm -hmm. you got to go read it now and you got to go <laughs> check it out because, yeah. um, it's really, really cool. Now 
when you decided to publish, did you seek the literary agents, the big publishers, or what what drove your actions? So uh, I did it independently after doing some research. Um, I had two, I won't name them, but two publishing companies that that offered deals. And to me, the deal was was atrocious, frankly. I mean, one was like 80% royalties that they would get. And I'm like, well, what do I get? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, what's left? Um, and then the other one was 50%, but then it was everything associated with trees and flight. Right. So, um, so if there's a movie, if there's lunch boxes one day, if there's a, a roller coaster or a video game, they tied into all that. And I'm like, well, no, I don't want that either. That's not, so I never really found the right fit. And, and frankly, this is where the, the, I guess the, we'll call it confident. That's what pilots are right? They're not cocky. Um, I was like, no, <laughs> I don't want anybody changing my story. Cause I knew it was such a unique story and it was very different. I mean, there's, there's two things I say, number one, you're not going to find another book about a Hawkeye out there. Just not going to happen. I did the research. It's not out there. Right. Nobody has written a fictional book about the Hawkeye period. Number two is you've never heard this story before period. I mean, it, it will like it or hate it, you have never heard it before. It is not an adaptation of me reading 10 books and turning it into this. It is 100% from me. There's no publishing company. There's no um, really, I mean, there is some editing. That's for sure. Thank God for editors. Um, but there's nobody trying to change the actual story, which was important to me. Um, now, it's not to say that in the future, I'm not going to go more traditional. It sure. was just for me at the time, I wanted to do it my way. I wanted it to be professional. You know, I know you talk about that a lot, you know, and, and I wanted it to be something that every step of the way, my hand was in it. So I knew much like flying the Hornet, it was just me. If it succeeded or failed, I couldn't point to anybody else. Right. So, yeah. Um, so that's why I went with this book, that route um, and, and outsource the things that I am not good at. So the cover art, did not do it. A lot of people ask, they're like, did you draw the cover? I'm like, God, no. Are you kidding me? No. Uh, editing, I did not do. Um, I worked with an editing company that did very detailed editing, uh, three different levels of editing for it, which was good. Um, so I will tell you that if you find a typo in that book, God bless that typo for making it through all that editing because a lot of eyes have been on that. Um, and then one step further with the audiobook, that was not, you know, I get that question. Oh, did you read it? I'm like, no, because there's professionals out there that, that you know, doing these types of things. There's yeah. a lot of stuff. Oh, man. Um, and, and that was probably the most interesting part because it's the, that's really where I felt like I had to find somebody that I could have a relationship with. Right. Cause now yeah. this whole time it's been my story, but now this guy's going to read it. And, and that that's not easy. And no, the guy who read it, Mike Dawson killed it. Absolutely killed it. Um, I have had so many people tell me they have read the book and listened to the the example on Audible and have bought the audiobook just to hear him read the story. Like it is, he is, I and I just, dumb luck that I fell into that. And that's one nice. of the things he does. And uh, again, it was my wife who, who mentioned him and I didn't know who he was. And his voice is just unreal. Yeah. Unreal. So... Thank God. I think it's important <laughs> to bring up, though, because a lot of times self-publishing and publishing yourself kind of gets a bad rap. It sure, sure. tends to be a naughty word like, oh, well, you couldn't get a literary agent. You couldn't get it published. So you went that route. Mm -hmm. Incorrect. Um, over 
almost 400 reviews on Amazon. Um, I looked it up today before we started recording. Um, he has the audio book of this as well. It's paperback, audiobook, Kindle, um, and hardcover. You have mm-hmm. them all. I'm um, all had success. So it's not that self publishing was the option. It was the better fit. And I think for anybody listening who wants to publish a book, um, believe in your product. And then you make that decision just like TR did. He made that decision for his story with some great success. So it's, um, it's worth kind of emphasizing, I think, you know, and as an author myself, you know, you believe in what you're writing and you want somebody else to, it's not that other people didn't or, or other people won't. Sometimes you have to take control yourself and call the shots. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think it's awesome that you did. Um, I know it's sometimes it's probably hard to turn down the thought of a big publisher pushing you, but of course, when you start crunching numbers, you go. Well, and that's that's really on. what it was. Is it was a it was a numbers game and it was a control game. Yeah, you, know, you lose again, control when you go to a big publisher. You really do. Yeah, and and to me, you know, this is going to be a movie. This is going to be huge. This is going to be my fame. I'm going to retire from my day job. It's going to be awesome. Now, in reality, is that ever going to happen? I don't know. But I did not want somebody else fill in their pockets 10, 20, 30 years from now off of this, right? Even, even just at the level it's at, you know, when you go out and you buy a book, most other than, you know, what Amazon and things like that get, most comes to me and my family. So that motivates me to then work for more things or to do the social media or to, to connect with the readers out there and the fans because it's a direct relation. I'm not working for somebody else. And again, I'm not saying I'm not saying I wouldn't in the future. There's been a lot that I have learned. I have a huge appreciation for this field now. Um, marketing is something that <laughs> there yeah. are experts at marketing, and I am just dabbling in that. Um, mm-hmm. That has become a whole thing that that really shocked me. I mean this this whole process. It started with well, I'll just do a digital book. How hard is that? I mean, I've written papers, right? And then somebody was like, well, are you going to do paperback? And I'm like, okay. You know, and then it was like, and then I think it was my dad was like, well, I'd really like a hardcover. I'm like, oh, crap, I got to do a hardcover, right? You know, because, and then it, you know, it was, okay, I've got digital paperback hardcover. We're good. We're, we're good. I figured out how to do all three. We're good. And then my wife one morning is like, well, you're going to do an audiobook, right? Everybody loves audiobooks. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I've ever even listened to an audiobook. Like, right. and I don't, you know, so to find all this stuff, um, and then fast forward, you know, I, I get on some podcasts, try to build the social media um, in, in various ways. And then somebody's like, and I know you do it, you know, somebody's like, well, what about a coin? And I'm like, I, I've never done a coin. I, I, how do you design a coin? You know, it's like, well, what about this? What about, you know, and now it's like, you can go on the website, there's stickers and patches and bottle breachers and signed copies. And I mean, all sorts of stuff that I'm like, what happened? This was not. Yeah. what I was expecting. Like you this can't just sell a, books anymore. A digital book. No, you can't. It's, it's a whole thing, you know, yeah. and, and it's, and I've even noticed, you know, just dabbling with different things and, and you know, cause I know you follow me, like, you know, somebody, somebody posts like, dude, all you do is take a Navy picture and write some quirky little thing every morning. And I'm like, maybe, but it's how I'm feeling at the time. And that's kind of a window into me. And then other people will be like, I love it. Don't stop that. I need yeah. those sometimes. Do you want but me to I, reinvent the wheel every day? Yeah. <laughs> but then the other thing is sometimes I'll take a photo of like, me working out in the gym or just the gym and like, Hey, this is where I'm at right now. It's 90 degrees outside, but I'm gutting it out. And that gets a lot of feedback because people want to see that. So it's, it's been very interesting 
kind of the whole thing. And certain parts of it are super enjoyable. I love the engagement. I love when people reach out and email or ask questions or do things like that. Other parts as far as like how to make the marketing work to where I'm not just taking a bath on everything that I buy that's sitting in my closet that, mm -hmm. you know, people, it's tough. And I'm trying to balance that when in reality, all I really want to do is write. And mm -hmm. that's, so, so it's a lot of time. I hear you, man. You know, associated, but it's fun. It is good. It's definitely uh, rewarding, as you know. I mean, people reach out to you, and, and there's you get to do stuff like this. You get to have conversations, you know, that are are very different. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think to some degree, Treason Flight kind of does that too, because it's not just a book about an E two pilot. Like, and it says it right there in the beginning. It's a book about leadership. That's what the book's really about. Now it's tied in with all this other stuff, but mm -hmm. it's a book about leadership which is it reminds me like of the real side of top gun you know what i mean <laughs> like yeah. the real yeah. top gun was a movie it was a story based for entertainment sure this is is also a story for entertainment it shows that real side of mm -hmm. of things of, yeah. of aviation and it's not all um, pretty it's no. not it's not there's a lot of ugly sides to it there's a lot of people trying to climb their particular career ladder and mm -hmm. what are their goals? What do they want to do? You know, what are they willing to step on to get there? You know, mm -hmm. with um, there's a lot of that. And I don't think a lot of people realize unless they've been in the military, how much that goes on in the military. You know, oh, they yeah. think we're all just great citizens of our country that go out and want to serve. And if, if we die for our country, we're heroes and all that. And it's like, no, it's a whole career. It's no different than any other corporation yeah. out there. There's people that are climbing ladders and lying and stealing yeah. and doing all sorts of stuff. And in and fact, we've created programs that have fostered yes. more of just what you said. Yes, like it's 100%. it's insanity the way some yeah. of it works. And you're absolutely right. The military is not this flawless system. If anybody's listening and we're bursting your bubble right now, I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, it, it has its flaws, just like it has its it pros, does. and you know, it, it is what it is. But um, going back it, to the publishing, you know, not only right. not only did you you know self-publish and you had control, but it's won some awards. It has. So it's gotten some uh, some some pretty good ratings out there that are all on the website. If you're a person that's into that, um, I was surprised by a lot of that. It was, you know, military thriller of the year in 2020, I guess, or 2021. Sorry. Um, and then when it when it was on Amazon, it, it briefly, you know, hit number one in its category and things like that. Um, it, the reason I'm not it, it's it's funny, I'm a I'm a true believer in not reading my own press. I had a, I had a boss, my CAG, who, who honestly was um, pivotal in my transition from the E2 to the Hornet. That was one of his things. And I mm -hmm. remember one day uh, I came down, I had, I had landed the E2 and it was a perfect landing, which is super rare. I mean, it was like the, the LSO grade was a little high, come down all the way. Okay. Three wire. Perfect. Nothing you could do different. And I was on cloud nine and I was walking <laughs> into the ready room and I saw him. And he saw the pass. He was watching it on the, the TV that's all around the ship. And he's like, that was a nice pass. I was like, nice pass. I was like, that was an awesome pass, sir. And he's like, don't read your own press. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, that ramp, that ship will kill you tomorrow the minute you let it. He goes, and that stuck mm. with me. It's like, mm. don't read your own press. It doesn't, I mean, I'm excited and I'm proud of the accomplishments and I'm proud of all that stuff. But 
I can't hang my hat on it or else I'm not going to work hard. And and the thing that I say, and I know other people have said this and, and I don't really feel like I stole this from anybody. It's how I feel is the most important thing to me when I put words on paper or I, I put effort into this is if you are going to buy my book, it's not the whatever it is on Kindle or hardcover, or even if you want the fancy signed hardcover from me, it's not that monetary value. It's the time that either you have to work to pay for that or the time you are going to physically sit there and read it. And that mm -hmm. is a commodity that you can't get back. And yep. if I waste your time reading my book, I have done a huge disservice. So every time mm -hmm. I sit in front of a computer, every time I try to do something with this world, as I call it, uh, my side gig, if you, if you will, um, I think about that reader who's going to take that time and how precious that time is. They could be doing something else. Mm. And if I don't put that effort in, so it's tough though, because it's, it's fun when you get these awards and people are like, you know, you get a good review, yeah. you know, like it's just, well, yeah, you want to shout out to the high heavens, yeah, man. I just want to go show my wife. And she's like, yeah, I, I get it. It's probably one of your friends. I'm like, it's not this one. I don't know who this person is. Like, <laughs> right, no yeah. idea. So, um, you know, you want to be excited about it. And and I don't think that you shouldn't be excited, but I, I really try to to listen to that old Navy captain who's yeah. retired now. Don't read your own press. So Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, what's next? Another book? A, a sequel? Uh, what's going so on? So it's next? interesting. Um, yeah. So I'm about halfway through. My goal is by the end of the summer to have the the first draft done with book number two. Um, I'm writing it. It's weird, man. Uh, it's tough because I'm trying to write it for the mass of people that have no idea who I am, who have never heard of T.R. Matson, who have never heard of Treason Flight or Never Down, Never Out or any of those things that I've tried to build and just see this book and they want to read it. Um, so I need that person to be able to read it. But I also need somebody like you who's read Treason Flight that's like, dude, come on, let's, where's book number two? Yeah. To not be so bored with giving all the details back to book one that you're like, dude, I just felt like I read the same book again. So it's, yeah. it's, it's much harder. And in the same regard, if I write it too much as a sequel, the likelihood of finding that um, publisher as well, because they don't want to be tied to something they're not making money off of. So it's a little bit of a dance. Um, it's exciting. Yeah. Uh, I promised myself that this book would not publish until after I was retired. So it's possibly going to be a little grittier, maybe a little bit more controversial than the first book, okay. um, which is saying something because there's some serious controversy in the first yeah. book too. Yeah. Um, but um, but that's kind of the plan. And then there's also a third, uh, more your style of, of what you've written, a leadership type of book that um, is kind of some of those things that in 20 years I've I've learned that don't read your own press is, is one of them. Things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the mantra of what, what became never down, never out, which is its own interesting, how that all became. Um, but kind of how I try to live my life and things like that, that, you know, if I could, if I could have read that at 22 going into flight school, maybe things would have been, not that I necessarily changed my, my path because it's been fun, but um, you know, but maybe it would have helped a little bit. So sure. Those are kind of the plans right now. Um, the day job keeps you busy. The the kiddo keeps you busy, you know, yep. things like that. So um, big shift at work, which will hopefully give me more time. So hopefully I can start doing this and because it's enjoyable, as you know, it's fun. Yeah. It's fun. Oh, yeah. It's so, a blast. It's <laughs> so but it's frustrating at times, but it's a blast. It is. <laughs> well, and I, I told my wife the, the hard part is, you know, and, and I've listened to you talk on these and 
and just with social media and some of the other podcasters, it's like, you have to get yourself into that place. And at certain points of a book, you kind of got to go to a dark place. And, mm -hmm. and especially, at least in, in the book, I mean, parts of Trees of Flight, obviously, but at least in the next book as well. And I'm currently at one of those points where like, it is a dark, this is a chapter that I'm about to write that is going to change the whole course of the book, the whole course of everything. It's that huge pivotal moment. And life's good right now, man. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah, hard yeah. to go into a room and be like, okay, I'm, I'm down, I'm out. This is, you know, the struggle. That's what's, it's tough. But it'll yeah. happen and it's going to be, it's going to be good. It's going to be exciting. Um, you know, I think it'll, I think it'll be worth a read once it comes out. So. Sure. Awesome. So where can people go to find more about TR Matson and uh, Trees in Flight? So the, the website's a good jumping off point. I tried to keep everything simple because I like simple. So, so trmatson.com. Um, every type of social media out there, whether it's Twitter, or Instagram, uh, uh, Facebook is all, I'm pretty sure TR Matt's an author is what it's under. Um, frankly, you could just Google, I realized the other day, TR Matson, and it all pops up, yeah. which is crazy there's a, now. There's a first. There's the, the only TR Matson. Your yeah, first. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> uh, I think back at, at when I went through survival school with the Navy and how they told you never to put anything out there. And I'm like, well, they would have had a field day on me right now. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> they needed to do that. So, um, but it's very easy to find. Uh, you know, Instagram and Twitter is what I try to post to the most. You know, Facebook, I think, is just a byproduct of one of those. And then um, the website, I try to keep up. I'm in the process of working with a company to try to make it a little bit better and more user friendly. Um, I use my I know a lot of and a lot of you guys are great at this with doing newsletters and things like that. And, and just and I'm I'm not. I, I try to use that daily Instagram thing okay. to, to be yeah. the, to be the conduit, you know, and, and to, to connect and, and, and things like that, just cause it's quick and I can do it right now and give you something and, and maybe show you a picture that I took or that was taken of me back in the day or something that you've never seen or, uh, or things like that, you know, so that's just kind of how it is right now. But, um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. So that's, or just okay. go on Amazon, Amazon, Audible, wherever you want to go. It's, it's out there. So, so there you sure. go. trmatson.com. You can get all his socials You can get out, check out the swag, read the prologue, find out Absolutely. more. There's reviews on there, the awards, you get to really know, you know, the story behind trees and flight. And then of course, you know, your favorite retailer, go, go ask them to order it, go online and grab a copy. You can get the Kindle copy right now. You don't got to wait for prime or whoever to deliver it. <laughs> and uh, of course, follow him on social media and check him out. Um, we're going to sign off here in just a second, but thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate Absolutely. your time. Fantastic yeah. book. Um, it deserves five stars a thousand times so uh, looking forward to uh, the sequel second book follow-up um, sure. and, and i really encourage everybody else to go out there and get it as well so thank you again brother thanks thanks for having me it was a blast